Well, <clears throat> this morning, as I mentioned, if you got an email from me that was sent out um, church-wide, is sort of like playoff season. The way I look at Lent and Holy Week and Easter in the Christian calendar is this, is, this is like game time. This is the highest point in the Christian calendar. Easter is the biggest feast, and for those of us who call ourselves Christians, now it is the time to pull out all the stops, come worship, be it everything. Let's really draw near to God in this season. And we're starting a new preaching focus this morning, and so I'm, I'm looking at this first sermon in, in, that, in that preaching series as kind of orientation. And if you think about orientation in terms of navigation, the two questions that you have to ask yourself are, where am I and where am I heading? We need to know where we are to find out our starting point, and then we need to figure out our, our direction. Where, where are we trying to go? And this, of course, applies spiritually as well. Where are we spiritually, individually, as a people, and where are we trying to go? Or where is God asking us to go? Or where is He taking us? These are the kind of questions that are helpful to ask as we go into this season of Lent. How is my walk with the Lord? Now, do you remember that movie? Some of you will have seen that movie, Good Morning Vietnam. It's an old movie about Vietnam with uh, Robin Williams, and there's a scene where he is totally lost in the jungles of Vietnam, and he has his assistant, the Jeep driver, played by Forrest Whitaker, and Forrest, the character Forrest plays, has a knee injury. And they are completely lost. They don't know where they are. It's just green, thick jungle, and they're walking for hours. And then they have a discovery that they're actually at the same place they started. They start to recognize a tree, and they, they surmise that the reason they're back there is because the knee injury keeps pulling them to the right. And as they're walking, they're just curving, and they do a whole circle and waste two hours walking, or however long it was. And you know why I bring that up? Is there are some people who think that that's how history works that history is merely going in a circle, and we just keep repeating, we keep repeating, and we're back at the starting point over and over again. We're making no forward progress. We're stuck just swirling. But that is not the account of the Scriptures. The Scriptures teach us that there is a clear beginning, there is a middle point with the cross at the middle, and there is an end to history. It is linear. It is not circular. And yet, if you look in some, with, with shorter lenses, you do see some, some things that keep, keep happening in history, some patterns that tend to repeat. But God, the God of history, it has an end in mind. He is going somewhere and leading us somewhere. So it's a journey. Life is a journey. And for those of us who are spiritually paying attention, it's a pilgrimage, which is a specific type of journey. Now, in Lent, if you're here at Ash Wednesday, you heard me say that what, what Lent is is basically one big worship service starting at Ash Wednesday where we are on a pilgrimage to Easter and we walk through these, these Sundays of Lent and then into the events of Holy Week and arrive at Sunday morning on Easter at the resurrection prepared to really declare Christ is risen and to worship Him as the risen Lord. That's why I encourage everyone, it's playoff season, let's get to church, let's be here. I praise you for responding. Thank you that you're here to worship the Lord and to walk through this pilgrimage as we approach Easter. Now, I want to start by explaining this new preaching focus. On the cover of your bulletin is a little graphic um, called Lift It Up. That's how um, the staff and I are titling this sermon series, Lift It Up. And I'm, I'm taking those words straight out of the mouth of Jesus from John chapter 8, where he says, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, you will know that I am He, and that I do nothing of my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. So when you have lifted up the Son of Man, 
And you can take that a number of different ways. In his context, he's saying, when you put the Son of Man on the cross, you will see that he is indeed the Son of God, the Son of Man, the Anointed One, the Christ. And we are elevating him. We are lifting him up in Lent to look at him again and to ask the question of lordship. Is he the Lord of my heart? And this morning, I'm, I'm going to walk through kind of a, a broad overview of the narrative of salvation so that we can locate these different events in Jesus's life, his earthly ministry. And in, in scholarship, they call this biblical theology, but sometimes people refer to it as the scarlet thread. There is a scarlet thread running all the way through the scriptures, and that is Christ. The whole Bible is about Christ, and it's about God's plan in, in salvation in Christ. Sometimes it's said, God is going from creation to new creation through redemption. And what I'm going to do this morning is I'm going to give us three points that will help us understand something about this meta-narrative, God's bigger picture. I'm going to talk about three Ps, actually. God's pattern, God's person, and God's plan. And we will see this throughout the scriptures. What happens is in chapter one of Mark's gospel, we have the account of Jesus's baptism, and some things are playing out there that are interesting, that we see some things, if you have the eyes to see it, that are the pattern of how God works. And where God um, interacts with people, he always initiates, and then he invites into a relationship. And I'm going to explain how that works, and we're going to see something from the very first bit of creation and an echo, a pattern of an invitation and an initiative of God here in Mark chapter 1. Now, in this account, what we've got is Jesus coming out of obscurity. For 30 years, he's lived basically unknown as a carpenter's son, and finally, he goes out and starts his public ministry. And what tips it off is John the Baptist has gone out into the wilderness and is beginning to call people to repent. And hordes of people are going out there, which is a very strange thing to have happening. I mean, think about it this way. If you wanted to start a brand new church in Clay County, this would not be a good strategy. Start dressing weird and eating weird things and go out to the most remote point in the middle of the county and get on a little stream and start telling people that judgment is coming and they better repent and get in the water, right? That is not a church growth strategy. But see, the thing about this is God, in his pattern, initiates with people and was drawing people out there. So Jesus, waiting for the time to be right, he, he said, I, I, I only do what the Father says and does. And so he was waiting for the time to come for his big launch into his public ministry. And when he sees this spiritual revival breaking out, in Galilee, he goes, okay, the time, it's now. Now's the time. And so John the Baptist is out there, and he's, and he's baptizing all these people, and Jesus goes out there and chooses to be baptized. And John doesn't want to do it, because he's like, I'm going to baptize you? No, this is backwards. You should be baptizing me. And he tells the people, this is the one who's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. I'm pouring water on you, but this, this one here is the Lamb of God. But Jesus prevails on him and says, no, no, we have to do this to fulfill all righteousness. And so he allows this to happen. John baptizes Jesus, and Jesus identifies with the people he's come to save. It doesn't mean Jesus was sinful. In fact, we know he was not. He was without sin. But he identifies with the sinful humanity he's come to save. And he comes out of the water, and the heavens are torn open. And it says that the voice from the Father says, this is my Son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. And then the Holy Spirit, like a dove, comes down upon him, 
and rests on him and then takes him out into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil for 40 days. And Jesus finally defeats Satan and says, begotten Satan, and he comes in, in, into the towns in power and begins preaching. He says, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe the good news. This is the basic account of what's happening here. Now, I want you to see a pattern being repeated, a pattern of God initiating and inviting into relationship. In the very beginning, it says that the Holy Spirit hovered over the waters. I'm talking Genesis 1 now. In the very beginning, the Spirit hovered over the water, and then God speaks and creation, and things start happening. And then God creates a man, and he puts his man in a garden, a perfect garden, and says, work it. And daily walks with him in the cool of the evening. And there's a serpent there. The devil is there and tempts him, and he falls. He fails. He succumbs to the temptation, and everything is messed up from that point forward. Now, notice this pattern. The Spirit is above the Jordan River, and, and Jesus, the man of God, is there. A voice from God is speaking, this is my son. The Spirit comes upon him, and then God puts that man in the desert. This time it's the desert, but he puts him in the garden, but now the garden is not a lush garden. It's a wilderness place. It's fallen. It's broken. All of the creation has been marred because of the first disobedience. But this time, it's not cyclical. It's not a circle to be repeated. It's not, uh-oh, here we go again. Devil's coming. Defeat. Problems. This time, God's man succeeds. He says, be gone, Satan, and resists all the temptations and emerges out of that wilderness victorious and strong and full of the Spirit. And then he begins to preach, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe. I think it's so interesting as those crowds were going out to that river to meet with John the Baptist that he asked them a question, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? I mean, it was really, it was a rhetorical question, but it actually was important to think about. Why are you coming out here to be baptized? And the answer is because God is drawing you. I could ask you this question this morning. Why did you come to church today? It's a sunny day. It's going to be beautiful today. Why did you come to church today? There are a number of maybe surface reasons, but I hope and believe for most of us at the bottom of that is because God is drawing us. We know we were made for Him. We need to worship Him. We need Him. And so we, we have this sense that we belong to Him, and so we come to worship Him on the Lord's Day, on the first Sunday of Lent. We are here because God is drawing us. And God doesn't change. The way that His pattern worked still works today. He initiates. He is drawing you, and then He invites into a relationship. And here, of course, in a fallen creation is where the problem is. When a holy God invites a sinful person to be in a relationship, we need a mediator. We need help. We need someone. And here enters the second P. We have a pattern of God initiating and inviting into relationship, and the second P is the person. We have a pattern, and then we have a person. And throughout the scriptures, God has called up these different people to be his mediators, his leaders, his rulers, his intercessors for the people. You can go all the way back to the very first one, Adam, who was supposed to be the prototype of humanity, but he failed. You've got Moses. You've got Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob before Moses. You've got King Saul who fails, and then David who fails, but lesser so. David is sort of a prototype, but not the perfect king. And the entire old covenant is left with us going, is there no one who can do this? What's going on? How how can we keep failing as a people? And so we finally have a king who has been anointed by God to rule and to win victoriously. 
And this, this little passage in Mark 1, when God speaks, he is picking up two things from the Old Testament. And most of the scholars agree on this. It is a reference to Psalm 2-7 and Isaiah 42-1. And in Psalm 2-7, it says this, As for me, I have set my king in Zion on my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. So in Psalm 2, he basically says, you are my son. This is mine. This is my son. I'm going to set him on the throne, and then all the nations he's going to rule. And then in in Isaiah 42, it says this, behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him, and he will bring forth justice to the nations. Again, a reference to God's call on his servant and the gift of the spirit and the call to bring justice to all the nations. So what we see in the person, the the man, Christ, is we see he's the son of God and he's the servant on whom the spirit has come. We get an amazing picture here of the trinity of God, which is a mystery. It's hard for us to understand the trinity. And you know, honestly, I like that it is because I don't want a God who's so simple that I can get him figured out. God is above us. He's transcended. He's bigger. He's greater. He's three in one. There is one God, not three gods, and yet three persons within the Godhead. You've got the Father speaking, the Son hearing that, being anointed, and the Spirit there empowering. This is who God is, an eternal community, a three in one. Now, we've got a pattern, we have a person, and then there's a plan. And God, as I said, is directing directing all of history. And I like how the Apostle Paul puts it in Ephesians 1. He says, his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, there's that term again, the fullness of time, is to unite all things in him, in heaven and in earth. His plan for the fullness of time is to unite all things in the man that he has set on his holy hill, his king, the son of God, Jesus. He's uniting all things under him. So if you're wondering, where is history going? If, if it's not just cir- circular and we're repeating things, where are we headed? We are headed to the place where all things will be united in Christ, where his reign will be universal over everything and everyone. Jesus preaches about this fullness of time. He says, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the good news. That's the message that he teaches then. And even though 2,000 years have gone by, that's still the message. Repent and believe in the good news. And it's an amazing message. This message still applies today. It's a message of a united kingdom, a kingdom under one king. And and the kingdom is sort of hard to get our minds wrapped around because we're looking for it in a very physical way. We're looking for a castle. We're looking for a big physical throne, a guy on, with a crown. Like we, we tend to look at it that way. And what Jesus says is that you can't see it that way. In fact, some Pharisees come to him one time in Luke's gospel, and they say this. Um, it says, being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed, nor will they say, look, here it is, or there, for behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. And that word in the midst could be translated in you. And it speaks not to this this physical clash of leadership and government. It speaks to a peaceful surrender of hearts, one heart at a time, to his lordship, where his kingdom is wherever his, his reign and his rule are recognized. So he's inviting us to repent of our rebellion 
and submit to his lordship and come to him. And as we sang, it's amazing grace. He is a good king to be submitted to. He is a good lord. It is, it is an amazing blessing that we have in him. So the invitation is to, to come, to return, to surrender, to submit, to joyfully worship. And so I come back to where I started with an orientation. As we're lifting Christ up, let's ask the question, where am I spiritually? You know, relationships are always in, in fluctuation. You know, think of somebody that you haven't seen in a while but is a good friend. Whatever caused the drift to happen, you know, life gets in the way, things happen, time, distance, distractions, but you can invest in a relationship and, and be restored as well. The same is totally true with God, who is, again, initiating and inviting us into a relationship with Him. And so, how are you doing spiritually? How's your walk with the Lord? Where are you with Him? Is He distant? Does He seem distant to you? Is there something that's gotten in the way? That's why we use Lent, to draw near to Him. And you'll hear me say that throughout the next six weeks. Let us draw near to God. So how are you spiritually? And then where are you heading? What I find is that the longer I've walked with the Lord, the more comfortable I'm getting with this idea of Him as the King and me surrendering to Him. So I no longer, not as often, hide things in my heart that I'm holding on to that I know are not lining up with His kingdom. I'm far more eager to bring those to Him and go, Lord, this is keeping you at arm's length from me, and I want to get rid of that. I want to be closer with you. Take it from me. Help me. And then listening to what He says and finding joy in laying down those things that are hindering my walk with Him. That's what Lent is about. And what we're going to do over these next six weeks is we're going to just keep lifting Jesus up until we see Him on Easter morning and declare He is risen and He is the Lord, and we'll worship Him on that day. So let us indeed draw near with him, draw near to him. And I want to invite you to pray with me now as we do that. Father, thank you for your word. I thank you that Jesus has solved our problem, that he has defeated sin and death. And I thank you for his constant work. Thank you, Lord, that you are steadfast and do not change. I pray that you would show us now things that are keeping us from you. Give us the courage to lay them down, to prioritize you as first, to worship you with all of our heart, our soul, our mind, and our strength. Help us to know you better, Lord. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I invite you to stand, and we're going to profess what we believe using the Nicene Creed. We believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all that is seen and unseen. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. Through him all things were made. For us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven. By the power of the Holy Spirit, he became incarnate from the Virgin Mary and was made man. For our sake, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried. On the third day, he rose again in accordance with the scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. 
he will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son. With the Father and the Son, he is worshipped and glorified. He has spoken through the prophets. We believe in one holy, Catholic, and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. Would you please kneel as we now pray? Service. We're going to have a time of prayer together for the needs of our church and for our, our nation and for the world. I'll pause after each prayer. I encourage you to offer your own prayers, either silently or aloud during that time. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, it is so easy for our minds to wander in this time of prayer.